Hi, crew, and welcome back to the Beercast. It is your host, James Rankin. This week, I have a guest on the show, Mr. Nick Winkerman. Nick is a coach, consultant, speaker, and author, and his book, The Language of Coaching, is the reason I had him on the podcast this week. Nick currently works with IRFU as the head of athletic performance, but his passion lies in communication and coaching communication. And you can really, really, really sense that in this week's episode. He just has so much passion for what he does and what what he believes in. As always, if you find the show useful, helpful, enjoyable, please share it on social media, follow us on your podcast platform and let your friends know. And without further ado, enjoy the show. Nick Wingerman, welcome to the Buacast. How are you today? James, I'm very good. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. Nick, can you just give us a quick elevator pitch, who you are, what you do, why I want you on the podcast? I don't think this has ever been quick, James. (laughs) Maybe this will be be the first. So let's make a a very long story short. 20 years in S&C, first chapter of the career at Exos stateside, formerly Athletes Performance, working with well, all varieties of elite athletes from primarily American sports. I probably cut my teeth more than anything else with the NFL Combine Development Program. So helping aspiring American college football players uh, transition into the NFL via the NFL Combine and then work with many of them after they were already in the NFL. And so that from an SNC perspective, what I spent most time doing, probably unlike most SNCs and what was unique about Exos and what still is unique is it was a full service high performance offering. And so not only was it the strength and power in the gym, it was also the movement skill development, which we now know is far more popular. Think of it kind of like the transference movement skill development on the field. And that's really where I've spent my time. So, so more than anything, I, I'd call myself a movement coach and I'd probably think of myself more aligned to a sport coach teaching skills, sprinting and agility and the like. Then I, and then I would a, a traditional view of the strength coach. And so about 10 years doing that, at the same time, I was doing a lot of coach education. So I've always had this natural affinity towards coaching individuals and coaching coaches. And by chance or choice, when you coach coaches, you think a lot more about your coaching. Yeah. And so inevitably, I just became, let's say, in a very healthy manner, obsessed with the act and art of coaching. And people say, well, what's coaching? Oh, periodization sets. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm talking about the actual thing you do when you show up in the session starts, right? When you're opening your mouth and you're engaging. And so within that, I specifically fell in love with talking, as my mom could have told you. And so (laughs) understanding this intersection between what we say as coaches and how it's perceived and shows up and the way it impacts an athlete's movement, that, if you would, is my, my subspecialty. And so throughout my time, got a PhD on the topic, only because my mom wanted to call me doctor, just not the kind that she was hoping for, <laughs> uh, wrote a book called The Language of Coaching on it, and all that is kind of related to that passion I'm sure we'll unpack. More recently, call it chapter two, I've been in, uh, in Ireland with Irish rugby for six years as the head of athletic performance and science. Still coaching, a bit more of a leadership role, but it's been beautiful to, to change and challenge myself working across all of our national and provincial teams. So we're about 34 SNC slash sports scientists, and that's just within my area. And it's been an absolute joy, James, being over here on the Emerald Isle trying to get these uh, boys and girls to be the best in the world. Awesome. Well, things are going pretty good for Irish rugby at the minute. So we'll partially credit it towards you anyway Nick. oh no so, no credit <laughs> we can definitely do that um awesome i like i said to you before we started recording i am about three quarters of the way through your book now okay and i love it and something that we're huge on in crossfit Bua, two things that you've alluded to is one is coaching coaches so the owner and head coach jamie every week spends time with us individually as coaches and has a set uh, 90 minute block where we dial in on our coaching and we practice our communication and we practice the skill of taking a class, working one-to-one with the person and doing all that. So 
hearing you come from the exact same point where it's like thinking about how you think about what you think about. <laughs> exactly. Is, exactly. It's refreshing and kind of new because I'd never experienced it before until I started working here. And you're only the second person I've seen write a proper book about this. So what made you kind of reach out or not reach out, but what made you take the step to go, not enough people know about this or know how to work on it. I'm going to write a book. Okay. So if, if I've asked myself this question and many guys, as everyone does, when they, when they find themselves at a certain point in their life, having done what they've done uh, and, and having not done what maybe they wanted to do, they ask themselves why and where did it come from? And so I can tell you, I've always been a very reflective person. And as any really reflective person will say, there's good and bad with that. We tend to overthink, we can be our worst critics. And when taken to the extreme, it it, it can be debilitating. But I think I've found a healthy relationship with self-awareness and and reflection, albeit through, through hard yards. And so that was kind of my default operating system anyway. Now, I found myself in love with physical development, human performance, and ultimately helping people. So I'll save that story. But like everyone, I have a story on how I got into the industry. Inevitably, when I got to college, getting an exercise science degree, I was becoming a personal trainer, which I always recommend whether or not you want to think you want to be one. Personal training in its various forms is a great way to develop yourself, work with a diversity of individuals, and more than anything, learn how to individualize, not just your programming, but also your communication. And so I was shadowing a fellow trainer at the time to to get my points towards this certification. Now, what's interestingly enough for those that are familiar with my work, what's ironic is he was a bodybuilding coach. And it's, it's ironic because a lot of the things he would say were very muscle and joint centric. But what's interesting is if you had talked to this coach and asked him, hey, why are you so good? And he was very good. He had amateur bodybuilders from all over the county coming to him. And he was just charismatic. And he was just a force to be reckoned with for better or for worse, if you ask some. <laughs> and if you ask him, why are you so good? He'd give you a lot of answers, James. He, he, he fancied what he did. But he would talk about my knowledge of anatomy, biomechanics, program design, specific range of motion, injury prevention, right? He'd layer on all of the stuff that I now call the what to do. But when I watched coach, when I heard him coach James, that's what stood out to me. Because I'm like, man, you're still doing bench press on Monday, right? You're still doing, bi- <laughs> you're still doing buys and tries, you know, 10 days. Classic, three sets of 10. Exactly, exactly. And he'd reference the paper for that, all that. But what I heard was someone who communicated almost poetically. It, it was like he was entertaining these individuals, not by just throwing off a lot of jokes. He was actually very clear, concise, precise, and focused in his language. But he did this thing naturally. He protected the moment before the movement. I'm going to say that again for the audience. He protected the moment before the movement to give them one thing to focus on, not two, not three. It was always just one. And you could see it was very precise. It was calculated. And having watched him coach many, many individuals, it was, it was never this cookie cutter approach. I hear him say new things all the time. He just could auto generate these amazing cues. And I'll never forget the day it hit me. I was probably 19 at the time, maybe 20. I went to another mentor who was also in the building. I said, listen, John here, I finally figured out why he's so good. He's like, what? Like his language, his cueing, this dude talks different than anybody. And I said to him at the moment, I don't know why I said this. I'm going to write a book about that one day called The Form Within. Now, over 15 years later, it's not called the form within, it's called the language of coaching. And it went dormant for many years before I picked the idea back up, probably five, six years after that moment that I just outlined. But for me, I've always known that this was important. The reality though, James, is when I was starting to become aware of this again in my own coaching, I was asking around to my mentors at the time. 
you know, individuals that have gone on to win Super Bowls. And we're going to NBA, NFL, unbelievable AAA certified strength coaches. And I said, well, how do I get better at coaching? They're like, well, what books are you reading? And they're talking, oh, super training, Bampa, you know, uh, athletic body and balance, games. People like, no, no, no. How do I get better at coaching? They're like, well, that just takes time. Trial and error. You got to figure it out. And I don't think they were trying to lead me astray because the reality is there were no books on it. Yeah, you could go into motor learning or business communication, but it took a lot of translation yeah. to figure out how it applied in our context. And so inevitably, I, 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 I studied it like I was being chased and I continue to study it with that level of urgency. And in 2016, moved here, PhD is done. I felt I had dedicated my time academically, theoretically coaching coaches and coaching athletes. I knew it inside and out. I was one of probably at the time a handful of people speaking about it, probably the only major one in our industry. And I said, I'm going to write the book that I, I wanted. Yeah. And Language of Co Coaching was born. Amazing. I love it. That's a great story. Um, I want to kind of circle back to something you said there and you emphasized it. And I'd, I'd love you to just dive in deep a little bit more. And it's yeah. that protect the moment before the movement. Yes. Hit me with it. Like dive deep on that. What's the, what are people doing coaching wise that's wrong before the movement on what should they be aiming for? Okay. The, the first thing I'm always aware of is when you're on a podcast like this or given a presentation, it is completely natural to hear what someone says and then assume everything that was not mentioned never happens or shouldn't happen. And I just want to name that very early on that the idea around coaching and communication is it's you used the word earlier. It's nuanced, right? It depends on, is it a novice? Is it an expert? But there are some really core principles that we can outline that are fairly universal. And I think your, your question is actually pointing us directly at some of those core principles. Yeah. And so that's what I'm going to try to outline here in, in beginning to answer it. So the first thing to answer that question is we have to step back and ask a broader question briefly. And that is how does communication show up? I like to use that phrasing of it. How does communication show up in a training context? And so here we're talking about from the second the session begins to the second ends, how does communication show up within training or practice? And specifically, we have to recognize that we are going to utilize communication broadly for two major purposes. To A, connect with the person, and B, connect the person to the movement. I'm going to say it again. The first form of communication is A, us connecting with the person, and B, in doing so, connecting the person to the movement, which means they move better, they learn to move better, and ultimately that scaffolds towards them achieving whatever goals we've collectively outlined. Now, in conventional terms, we have a phrase, we have a word for that first one. When I try to connect with a person, we can broadly call that your interpersonal communication skills, okay? There's tons of books on this in the business space and the presentation space. As you said, there's a few authors in our own industry that are starting to talk more about this. And that's how you connect with, as I like to say, the person inside the player. The second one is where I have focused. I talk about both, but the B, the second level of communication is where I focus. And that is what I like to refer to as your ability to communicate movement. I just love that phrase. How good are you as a coach at speaking movement? Offering language that is unavoidably easy to understand and apply to the way I move as the recipient, as the client, the patient, and the athlete. The key thing to recognize is we hear the old adage, get to know your client, get to know your athlete. So these two forms of communication, which I lay out in what I call a communication landscape, they depend, they enter, there's an interdependence on them. And let me put this kind of metaphor, this visualization for the listener. I interact with the person at the personal level. That's like I'm going to the quarry. I'm going to the quarry and I'm mining them 
for their memories, experiences, preferences, their likes, their dislikes. All of this is on offer when you are just rapport building and getting to know someone. And through that, you can use other communication strategies to try to influence habit form, behavior change, so on and so forth. But in the context of our discussion, James, when I'm engaging with a person, I'm trying to truly understand how they see, perceive, and experience the world. Because ultimately, that is going to allow me to create and curate better coaching language that A, they understand, B, they're interested in, and C, ultimately makes them move better, right? So so that's the first thing. We're at the thousand foot view. We're saying, okay, with these two streams of communication that are interdependent, kind of like the double helix of, of DNA. It's the DNA of training communication. Now we get to your question, the moment before the movement, and we're in the province of communicating movement. We're just now talking about communicating how to move better. I outline five steps that I'm sure you're familiar with from the book's perspective that go something like this. When you teach a movement, there's value in describing, demonstrating, cueing, there's that moment before the movement, they're doing, and then a debrief. Now you'll notice, describe, demonstrate, and cue. Those three steps happen before the movement. Two words there reference language, don't they? Describe versus cue. I I want the listeners to take this on board. Describing a movement is not synonymous with cueing a movement. And let me give an anecdote everybody can relate to. James, have you ever had an athlete or a client say to you, James, I know what to do. I just don't know how to do it. All the time. All all the time. Go figure. And so I believe we can start to solve that knowledge of what to do versus knowledge of how to do it problem with what we're discussing right now. And the solution is not an or solution. It's an and solution. Our industry taught us how to talk from biomechanical textbooks from anatomy textbooks, from physiology, kinesiology textbooks. And ultimately what it's empowered us to do, you're ready for this, James? Describe movement. And we have assumed that our ability to describe, hey, your knee goes here, your hip goes there, your shoulder goes there, your elbow goes there, this anatomical, what I refer to as internal language, that that somehow can be cashed out in the form of better movement. But ultimately, all you are doing is giving people information about what the movement is, not about how to perform it. The language of how is what I talk about in terms of cueing. The language of how is the moment before the movement. And that's where we start to look at things and we can unpack this that we call external cues or analogies, visual analogies that promote an external cue. And so in that space, we're offering language that can help the person understand how to perform the movement, not just talk about the movement. The key thing within that, the final thing I'll say, and then I'll stop here, is it needs to be singular. It needs to be one cue. Yeah. Why does it need to be one cue? Well, here's an anecdote. If I was to take your breakfast, your lunch, and your dinner, James, And I was to put it all in a blender. And then I ask you to take a sip. And I'm going to ask you, James, which meal did you like the most? (laughs) You don't taste any of them. Is an anecdote for how a lot of us coach. Yeah. We give them two, three, four different cues with the best of intentions, backed by the best in science. And we forget that attention is a bottleneck, it can only take on so much information. It's like, imagine just to grab a cup of water to quench my thirst. Imagine that I had to coordinate my shoulder, my elbow, my wrist, and my fingers. We know that's not what happens. I see, I I notice the thirst. I see the bottle. I reach, I quench, game over. My body was invisible to me. It was guided by a singular focus. And so what you and I can start to discuss is 
how do we, yes, describe movement, internal language, beautiful, but then transfer that into a Trojan horse-esque singular cue that hides all of that technical detail in a single overriding guiding phrase that helps me know how to do this thing, not just discuss it. I love it. I actually, I wrote this down and I've highlighted it in my notebook because I think I heard you say it on another podcast where you said, just like that, internal language for describing and external language for cueing. Yes. And you had a, there's a point in your book as well um, you, where you have exercises and it's which of these cues is, or which of these is describing the movement and which is the external. And I, yeah. I have your book on my Kindle yeah. So I'm able to share screenshots of it straight yeah. onto my Instagram. So I did. And I asked people who follow me to answer it. And I think I got, I think I got 12 or 15 people respond and everyone got it wrong. Yeah. The internal to external and which one's better for yeah. getting people yeah. to do the movement. So could you dive into, you've explained there the difference between the internal and the external. Yeah. Can you dive into why, if I'm telling you how to do something, or if I'm giving you the cue, why the external is better? Let's, again, and, and I apologize for hijacking this, let's do a little thought experiment for the listener yes. to let, lead us to doing that, okay? So I love doing this one, and, and forgive me if people have heard this before, okay? So we're going to make a bet. We're going to make a bet. We're going to imagine we're at MGM Grand, Vegas. I miss Vegas. I love it. <laughs> you walk into MGM Grand, and you say, hey, Make a bet to walk up to say, what's this all about? And here's the bet. I'm going to give you and your listeners four cues, okay? And these cues, singular, each one's a singular cue, each relate to sprinting faster. So what you see is the MGM branded 20 meter track, okay? And it's how fast you can run 10 meters. And so they hand you this card with four cues. They say, you're about to run four sprints, With each sprint, you're going to use one of these focus points. I want you to select the cue that you think is going to allow you to run the fastest 10-meter time, okay? So you're reading the card. Cue number one is focus on rapidly extending your knees. So you can imagine you're about to get on the track. You're in a three or a four-point stance. And with every single stride over the 10 meters, rapidly extend your knees. That's the headlight in the head. That's what you're focusing on. Okay. Then you read the second cue. Focus on rapidly pushing the ground away. Okay. Focus on rapidly pushing the ground away. So even as you're sitting there, you go through the mental simulator of what that would feel like. And then scratch it. I'm only going to give you three here. You read the third cue. Okay. The third cue says, imagine we've put a rattlesnake right behind your back leg and it's about to bite your calf, sink its teeth in your calf, beat the bite, beat the bite. So those are your three cues. Rapidly extend your knees, rapidly push the ground away, right? Rattlesnake style, beat the bite. Those are your three cues. Which cue are you betting on to let you run the fastest time there, James? Beat the bite. Beat the bite, okay? And I have now given that on, I don't know, my podcast, how many webinars, how many live conferences, and without a fail, it's either B, the push the ground away, or beat the bite. The vast majority is the beat the bite. And at the end of this podcast, if we were to ask people, hey, what was that one cue that James picked? I guarantee they're going to remember beat the bite. But the other two, they probably would struggle. So what do we start to notice here is what people just experienced are the three different types of cues we as coach offer. Yeah. Internal cues, rapidly extend the knees. External cues, environmentally centric, push the ground away, like pushing a barbell away. And then analogies that promote an external focus, beat the bite. Just to be clear, it's an analogy because there isn't literally a snake behind it. <laughs> okay? Now, when I was working in Phoenix, Arizona, that was always a possibility to <laughs> that cue that much better. And so what's interesting is I'm working on writing up a paper, James. I'm writing up a paper that used that exact experimental design. We asked just about 100 individuals across 15 movements basically to make a bet. And which cues would they prefer? And the overwhelming majority, over 80%, had a systematic preference 
for external cues and analogies. And so when we write that up, it's not going to surprise anyone. So intuition now tells us that these external cues and analogies help us move and perform better. A recent paper then, a meta-analysis, so for the listeners, a meta-analysis is like a super review paper, looked at all the research over the last 20 plus years. So the first paper, the first paper on this was published in 98 by Dr. Gabrielle Wolf, looking at internal versus external cueing. Now, this is an interesting story. I think you will enjoy this. Her first paper literally looked at a ski simulator. So those two little uh, steps you stand on with the bungees and you go side to side. And basically, she was interested in internal cues, push through the outside edge of the foot versus external cues, push through the outside edge of the wheels that are on this ski simulator. And what she found was better performance in learning and retention with the push through the outer wheel versus push through the outer foot. For people that actually ski and snowboard, think of it as being analogous of focusing on your foot in the boot versus the edge of the the ski or snowboard itself. Get this, James, when she sent that paper in for publication, it was rejected. Wow. Simply because they could not believe something as trivial as focus on foot versus wheel mattered. And they said, do it again. And so she repeated her findings within a different balance-based study. And so if you ever read her original 1998 paper, know that as background. Wow. 20, almost 24 years later, this meta-analysis comes out without question over that when you compare an external focus to an equivalent internal focus, external results in better immediate performance, better learning, better skill transfer. And here's the key, independent of age, independent of gender, independent of mental and physical ability. This is not some off the wall method that is going to, this is a functional foundational inbuilt phenomenon of how we organize our movement. So you've now asked James around, you've asked me around mechanism as to why it is, but let's use an intuitive approach to unpack this. And then we can cite the research. If we go back to our MGM grand example and the, the internal cue rapidly extend the knees versus the external cue push the ground away or beat the bite. Question to you, James, is are the, are the knees the only thing involved in sprinting? No. No. Okay. So what we immediately know is anytime you offer an internal cue, you immediately require the person to think about more than just that cue. Yeah. Because you're asking them to isolate their focus to a single joint, muscle, or limb, which is impossible when you are trying to perform a movement that requires more joints, muscles, and limbs than the one implicated. Yeah. And so intuition would then tell you is it's going to overload attention. It's going to require you to flick, if you would, if you really pursue that focus point, it's going to allow you either to abandon the hole, but you can't really abandon the hole. Otherwise, you would only extend your knees. You're still running. And so it requires more cognitive real estate. Now, interestingly enough, this hypothesis was tested. If we look at reaction time, we know that reaction time is heavily based on your attentional focus. And so two studies, one was on a balance board where they gave people a little button and they're balancing. And they said, every time that red light turns on, hit the button. And so it's called probe reaction time, PRT. And one group was told to focus on those lines in front of their feet, keep the lines parallel. If the lines are parallel, you're balancing. The other group was told to keep their feet parallel. Well, would you believe the group that was trying to focus on keeping their foot feet parallel had a slower reaction time. Then they did the study in one that makes sense on sprinting and the reaction to a gun going off. And again, it's small, but still small margins in sprinting. When you focus externally, you reacted faster to the gun going off. And so this wraps up under, and it's still the dominating theory, what is called the constrained action hypothesis. So think about those words, constrained action hypothesis. So my actions are constrained when I prioritize the micro 
over the macro. See the macro, you ready? The macro implies the micro when it comes to movement, but the micro does not go the other direction. The micro does not imply the macro. And so you would have read about that. I talk about this uh, in, in the book and being when we prioritize the micro over the macro, the movement falls apart because we require an isolated, arbitrary, artificial emphasis on one area at the expense of all others. And so literally what happens if we were to zoom into the body, what's going on is number one, we see literally the constraining, the restriction of degrees of freedom. What that basically means is you get this real high EMG muscle activation in and around the area of focus. So if I tell you to rapidly extend your knees or squeeze your calf or squeeze your glutes, we see a heightened activation. But here's the thing. It's a co-contraction. So if I'm trying to jump high, I don't want my hip flexor screaming as my glutes and quads are trying to fire me up to the ceiling. But that's exactly what happens. And they've shown this repeatedly. When I give an internal cue, there's basically a handbrake put on the joint and muscle structures that are being referenced in the internal cue. And so if I'm trying to teach dynamic, continuous fluid motion, I do not want that. Now, immediately for the individuals that might be susceptible to thinking about injury prevention, rehab, and hypertrophy might say, well, hold on. Aren't there instances where increased muscle activation is advantageous? And the answer is yes. Uh, If I'm trying to rehab a muscle or do a single joint activity, and I want increased global co-activation of all the muscles around a joint, then internal cues are recommended. Uh, If I want to, in doing isolated bicep curls, focus excessively on the bicep or chest flies, the pecs, absolutely. But the second, if I'm a bodybuilder now, listening to that, don't shut off the podcast, because if I want increased strength endurance, power expression, speed of movement, force output, total repetitions under high tension load, guess what? External, 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 external wins out. So there's a very small category of reasons one might utilize an internal cue and go no farther than intuition. Everyone listening, just monitor yourself or actually don't monitor yourself and notice by chance, how often are you thinking about head, shoulders, knees, and toes in activities of daily living? You don't. But James, we coach people as if it's the priority iOS operating system. And so I go back to what I said earlier. I'm not hating on internal language. It plays a role, but not the role our industry has assigned it. It is for describing. We have to add in this new wave of external cueing and analogy. It's not an or, it's an and. Well, yes, like you mentioned earlier, I, I can picture in my head times where I've just described the movement, described what I want people to do, and then seen a wave of people do completely different things and loads of confused faces at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> because some people, I mentioned glutes and hips and knees and quads and hamstrings. And some people think of hamstrings because it's the last thing they heard. Some people think of glutes because it's the first thing. And you see all these different things. So that's something that's something that we as a team have been working on anyway. Um, but not, the way you described it there, I can picture my own sessions and how badly I've messed that up and now realizing exactly why it's happened. So, so just before you get to the next question, let's give people a really like clean way to think about a blank slate, right? So they're working with someone for the first time. We said it earlier, you got this, and I didn't give the name. It's called the coaching communication loop. We said you describe, demonstrate, cue, they do, and then you debrief. Now, people might want to know about the debrief, and we can talk about that later, but let's focus on the first three steps again. Describe, demonstrate, and cue. What I, what I outline is you don't always have to use all of these steps. The model is there when you do decide to communicate, it helps you understand how to do it better. But sometimes the most valuable communication are, are, are the things that are not said. And so oftentimes when I'm coaching James, the first thing that I'll do is provide 
the least amount of descriptive information as possible. I might say something like, hey, right now we're going to work on the pull-up. Okay, so I alert, what's the pull-up? I'm going to, and I would say, I'm going to demonstrate this pull-up for you. I get over, I demonstrate a good pull-up. And then I might say, I want to see you do what I just did. And for a lot of my coaching, that's how I start. And the, for a person who wrote a book called The Language of Coaching, that might not seem obvious to people. Yeah, okay? it's a little counterintuitive, doesn't it? <laughs> so I start with a blank slate. Here's why. How do I know what to coach if I don't know how you authentically move? And the second I start introducing my own biased, uninformed language that might come from a good place, but is not anchored in anything real because I've never watched you move. How do I know what to say, right? Not all movements are created equal here. And so I'm very brief on the description. I demonstrate, and then I say, let me see what you got. Now I might give them a very light cue. Like I say, hey, I want you to imagine you're pulling the bar down to the ground. Something very, very simple that's universal that just puts tension where I want on the bar. So I might give them the cue, but it's very, very light and it's universal. Then I watch them move. Sometimes it takes one set of watching someone move. Sometimes I want to see multiple sets. I can't answer that question. The key thing I can answer is you're looking for movement stability, not in joint stability and that, hey, they're making that same mistake over and over again. They're always winging their elbows out or kipping their legs forward. They do it all the time, rain or shine. Okay, now I know James's authentic movement. Now I can start to identify the cue in the next moment before the movement that is uniquely suited for you. So I want to be very clear to understand how to talk effectively usually starts with listening and watching. Wow. It makes so much sense, but it's something that you just leaves you so often. How then can, so say a a ton of coaches, I know there's going to be a lot of coaches that listen to this and they're probably in a similar position to me where we're now going, right? Less talking, more paying attention, um, more uh, analogies as cues rather than internal stuff. How? How do we, knowing that we need to do it and being able to do it aren't the same thing. How, how uh, over the next 12 months, can I get better at communicating? Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a, couple, a, 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 couple, a couple things here. This is, this is good. First of all, there, there's no there's no cookie cutter solution, but I mean, James, as, as you're navigating the book, you can see I've provided, uh, you know, live tested, theoretically informed models that are designed to help answer this question. And so I don't want to insult anyone by suggesting for a moment what we're about to talk through explains it all. But this is the key hang up for people. I rip. I rarely get pushback. In fact, I can't think of a time where I get pushback on what we've discussed so far. When you outline it and hopefully what is the colorful way that we're outlining it, people can see it just omnipresent in their own experience as athlete and coach. And then when you layer on the mountain of evidence, it's like, okay, no brainer. But now the how question. And in the same way, we have to help coaches figure out what coaches are trying to help athletes figure out. They're trying to help them figure out how to move better. But for me, what we're saying is we got to help them figure out how to coach better to do that. So they actually are working towards the same end. An anecdote here, just to empathize with the challenge in front of coaches, an exciting one, but a challenge nonetheless. You go to a comedy show, James, and you can laugh. You know when it's a good joke. It doesn't mean you can tell a joke. That's what we're doing, right? Yes, yes, yes. I've only been using that. That hit me about two weeks ago, that phrasing of this. That's what you're up against, listeners, is you know when you hear a good cue, even out of your own mouth. You know when you hear a good analogy out of your mouth or at others. Where people then get hung up is, okay, now I'm going to do this. It's like saying, okay, I'm going to go watch Jim Gaffigan, one of my favorite comedians, and now the next day, okay, I'm going to go be Jim Gaffigan. You can't do it. But with every good comedian, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Gaffigan, all of them, Chris Rock, all of them, they are students of their craft. When they actually show you the amount of notes and preparation for their talking, for their communication skill, 
It's unbelievable. And it is far more systematic, prescribed, and prepared. Now, the art form then is in the delivery and the timing, but the literal anatomy of the jokes, the setup, and the punchline is planned. It's tested. We are no better than comedians. We can learn from their craft, from their path. And it's exactly, in, in retrospect, what I did. I started to work my material on athletes. I would then start to write down cues, jokes, right, for those athletes in preparation for the session until the mechanism underpinning effective communication was downloaded, became a part of me. So here we go. How do we do this? There are two specific types of, of cues we've talked about. And as you know, James, I, I have a chapter dedicated to each of these and the respective models. We have our external cues and we have our analogies. If, if you can forgive me, we, we probably can't go through both. Let's talk about analogies yeah. because I find in common discourse and coaching, these are the, if there was a secret weapon in coaching, these are the secret weapon. The ability to wrap highly technical, nuanced biomechanical information into a simple, fun, unavoidably memorable idea that forcibly, in the good sense, changes the way you move. That's what an analogy is. So let's define it. An analogy is a comparison between something you are familiar with and something, in our case, they're less familiar with. So if you're trying to make an improvement to the hip hinge, right? What I'm saying is they're less familiar with how to do that. Otherwise, they'd be able to do it. Yeah. And so we're trying to come up with a visual analogy that helps them understand and feel how to do that better. I want people to think of analogies. Are you ready for this one? As verbal demonstrations. Analogies are verbal demonstrations because they prompt a visual. When you read Harry Potter, it is unavoidable that a picture occupies your mind. You start seeing what Potter looks like and Hermione, right? And Dumbledore, you start to get this vision if you had never seen the movies. The exact same thing happens when we're talking, but certainly when we use visual action-oriented language. And so that's what I mean when I say an analogy, a right analogy is a verbal demonstration. When we say things like earlier, James, beat the bite. Did you think about that when you heard it or did you feel it? Yeah, I felt it. The, you the felt quick, it. The quick foot movement, yeah. You felt it. And so when I say somebody rapidly extend your knees, especially if you're a client that was not born in this industry, that's like someone talking tech speech to me. Yeah. It completely lives at the semantic level of my cognition. It doesn't really occupy anything in my emotional motor state. But analogies, assuming they're referencing something intelligible and the person can relate to, they're going to feel them as if, that's the comparison part, as if they were there, as if it were real. And so the beat the bite was an example of an analogy. Now, I guarantee as people are listening right now, they can think of all the analogies they've come up with. The question is, could you come up with a novel analogy on the spot? That's where people get hung up. So what I find is the easiest way to understand analogies is to one, have the definition. We've done that. An example, we've given that. But there's three categories of analogies, I've found at least. And in these three categories, once you understand them, I find that they act as a catalyst, a spark, uh, a muse of sorts to help get the uh, creative juices flowing. But before I share those three, the first thing is first, you need to, as a coach, be very clear in what you are trying to change and coach. Yeah. It is remarkable how many coaches coach from a script. What I mean by that is they're teaching a squat and they know what? They know that the feet should be out, the knees should be straight and aligned, the hips should be back, the chest should be up. And what they do is almost like on a record, they're just saying these things like throwing darts at a dartboard in the dark, hoping something will stick. Yeah. I don't mean that to be overly critical because I was one of those individuals and some days I still am. But what we have to be very clear on is look up from the program and see the person. 
look for an authentic movement pattern, look for the authentic error, the thing that is constantly troubling their progress, and let that be the canvas with which you paint your analogy. Let that be the focus with which you cue them. Once you have that, then you ask yourself a very simple question. What is something in real life that this person may have experienced that if real would forcibly change them into the pattern I want? Okay, let me give an example for that specifically, and then I'm gonna give you the categories. So if I have someone, we talked about a pull-up earlier, swinging their legs forward all the time. And let's say I don't want them kipping. I want it to be a very militant type pull-up. I could say, James, I want you to imagine you're hanging off a brick wall and there is a ravenous dog about to bite your heels. I want you to pull straight up that wall. What that wall immediately does is it constrains your ability to swing your body forward. The wall likely adds in an implied grip strength piece. So you get more compression and the dog is likely going to give us a sense of speed of movement on the way up. Now you wouldn't give that cue to my wife because my wife is a dog lover. We've saved pit bulls (laughs) and we find it's a bad stigma on animals, but that then goes back to knowing the person, doesn't it? So you see how all this starts to weave together. It's a beautiful, complex art that is called coaching. So then what are the categories? Categories are very simple. I'm either going to invite you to mentally export yourself to another scenario that if real would change the movement. Two, I'm going to import something into my present scenario that if real would forcibly make the change. Or I'm going to do what I call object-based analysis. I'm going to change. I'm I'm going to invite you to change, transform your body into another structure and or element, for example, a spring whose properties align to the change I want. So let's start with the export. In the book, I call these scenario-based analogies. In the second edition, I'm going to change them. Okay, so the export is I'm teaching someone to sprint. I want to teach them to gradually rise. They're not gradually rising. So I might say, hey, I want you to imagine as you drive forward, you're sprinting up a hill. So by imagining I'm exported to sprinting up a hill, my body has to continually drive up. Otherwise, I'm going to go chin first into the hill itself. I equally might say, I want you to imagine as if you are sprinting up a set of stairs. I might say, imagine you are hanging off a wall. I want you to pull straight up. In all of these cases, I'm thinking of a real life scenario that requires the movement I'm coaching, but in and of itself would promote the change we desire. Scenario-based analogies, export them. Import, in the book I call constraint-based analogies. In our conventional talk about skill acquisition and motor learning, that's how I mean the word constraint. And so I might say something like, hey, I want you to imagine there's a mini band around your your knees. Keep tension in the mini band. Uh, I want you to imagine there is a wall in front of you and behind you during your front squat. I want you to squat straight down and up. I want you to imagine as you load down for this uh, medicine ball throw that the medicine ball is chained to the ground. Break the chain as you explode vertically in a a wall ball, for example. Or in an RDL, imagine your chest is chained, your sternum is chained to the ground at the bottom of the RDL. Break the band. Break the chain as you come up. You can feel the entire tension right spread through the body with that type of visual. So I'm importing something then into their mental arena, their mental environment. The third one, object-based, stand tall like a tree, flat as a table, load like a spring. From head to heel, imagine your body as a chain being pulled in both directions, load and explode. In all of those cases, I'm asking you to change your whole body or part of your body into another material whose properties represent the biomechanical change I want to encourage. In all of these cases, we lower the barrier to understanding. We're using simple visual story language. It's anchored to a priority. 
in terms of something they can relate to and act out. It's like a kid. A kid can be mom, dad, doctor, or dog. We can utilize the power of our visual engine and its relationship to our motor engine, which evolutionary allowed us to mirror people to learn skills. We're offering that exact same mechanism to literally, yes, physical demonstrations, but analogy gives you more flexibility because now I can not only get paint a picture of the movement, I do it in terms of the change we want. And so hopefully scenario-based analogies, export them. Constraint-based analogies, import something in. Object-based analogies, change the physical form. Make it singular, anchor it to the prior or the priority error. Once you've anchored it to their authentic movement and protect that singular cue for the moment before they move, repeat and recycle. Amazing. You make it sound so simple, Nick. <laughs> it is, James. It is. It wasn't when I started, yeah. but it it is that simple. People need to be bold to make mistakes. Yeah. They need to be vulnerable and brave enough to involve the athlete. Say, hey, this is the change we're trying to make. I need to get a better hip hinge. I gave you this cue. Imagine your body is long from head to heel or imagine your chain being pulled in both directions. James, the amount of times I ask people, hey, what do you think you can focus on? Or put this into your own words. That's a ha- You want to hack? That's a hack. Clearly explain what to do. Give them an example of a cue on how to do it, which likely has not worked. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing this with them. And then invite them to contribute. And so get them to speak from their language locker. Because ultimately, communication is not what is said. It is what is understood. Coaching is not monologue. It's dialogue. We haven't said that, but I think it's a good way to end. That with everything I've talked about... My athlete's feedback and contribution to the process is central. I love it. Coaching is a dialogue. That's, that's a great way to finish. Nick, I'm really conscious of your time, and I'm so thankful for coming on. For people who want to find out more about you, where can they go? Yeah, yeah. so if they want the long-form videos and even kind of the book club, open free videos that goes chapter by chapter, it's thelanguageofcoaching.com. Get in touch, info at thelanguageofcoaching.com. And the fresh ideas is uh, at Nick Winkleman on all the various channels. The book, The Language of Coaching, Amazon. Highly recommend the book. Thanks, buddy. Nick, thank you so much. Cheers, brother. All the best. Thank you.